You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a man from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning once again. My name is Kevin. One of the pastors here, if you're visiting with us, I want to thank you for joining us today. We know you could be anywhere this morning, and we count it an honor that you're with us here. Before we jump into today's text, I would like for us to seek God's help in prayer. So please feel free to join me in praying. Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering together of in the midst of all that's going on in our lives, in our world, all the stuff that we're carrying and wrestling with. I thank you for the gift of gathering, of being reminded of who we are, of who you are, of what you're doing in our world, of getting our hearts recentered opening your word and allowing it to do its work on us. And so I pray today that you would give us hearts that are receptive to what your word says, that your spirit would bring conviction where we need it, would pierce us where where our hearts have grown hard or cold, but you would also bring us tremendous comfort. You're the God of all comfort. You comfort us in our brokenness. You comfort us in our suffering and the good news of the gospel as you show us grace, even in our sin. And I pray that we would respond to that with a life of love and obedience. And so we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, we're in a series that we've entitled Sacred, looking at the origin story of our world and of humanity from Genesis 1 and 2. And the heart behind the series is that we want to reclaim some core teachings of Christianity that are have often been either overlooked, disregarded, or just kind of lost in the shuffle in the modern church. And today, we're looking at the creation of Eve, the gift of marriage. And I want to say at the outset, there are so many hot-button cultural issues that are connected to this text, sexuality, gender, singleness, sex outside of marriage, adultery, divorce, homosexuality, transgenderism, gender identity. These are all really big issues. 
and they're charged issues. And behind all of these issues, they're, they're not just you know, political footballs to kick back and forth. Behind these issues are real people too. who've been created in the image of God. They're our neighbor that Jesus has called us to love. And so I think any disciple of Jesus who's really thoughtful in our day, they're wrestling with this question, how do you navigate these things well? How do you raise kids in a society like ours? I mean, I, I preached sermons on marriage and gender. I went back like 10 or 15 years. And even just looking at the sermons, like our, our world has just changed so much on these issues so rapidly. And how do we respond? And that's beyond the scope of any one sermon. But I think this text is so helpful. Ivan Illich, he was a Catholic priest and philosopher. Someone once asked him, how do you transform a society? How do you best transform a society? Is it through a violent re revolution? Is it through gradual reform? And he said, neither. If you want to change a society, you have to tell an alternative story. You have to tell a better story. I think the story that we're being told about human sexuality and about marriage by our world, it's not a good story. But Genesis 2 is a great story. It's the best story. And so we're going to press in here, walk through the text. There are a lot of implications to draw out. I know not everyone here is married, um, but Hebrews tells us that marriage should be held in honor by all. It's something that we as a church should honor and lift up. I also want to say that kind of part two of this message will be next week. Pastor Jonathan's going to be talking on community and friendship in particular and how we do life together as God's people. But today we're going to focus on marriage and we're going to look at this text under three headings. One, the purpose of marriage. Two, the promise of marriage. And then three, the provision for marriage. Real simple. Purpose, promise, and provision. But starting with the purpose. And what I mean here is, why does marriage exist? What, what is marriage for? You ever ask that question? Like, why do we get married? What's the heart behind it? What's God's design behind it? And what's so interesting in Genesis 2, after God creates everything and it's wonderful, sin has not touched the world, God's like, it's all good, it's all good, it's all very good. Wait, there's something that's not good though. It's not good, we're told in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. A man in the room, can I get an amen? Amen, right? A world filled with all men would be like a sweaty locker room filled with a bunch of angry dudes all the time. It would be a bad, bad place. This makes sense, though. It's not good. As we've talked about in this series, God has eternally existed in a community of love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we have been created in God's image, which means we've been created for community. And so God looks and he sees it's not good for Adam to be alone. And then verse 18, he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, there is so much meaning, meaning embedded in the two Hebrew words translated here as helper suitable. And so we're going to just two minutes kind of press into what these words meant in the original language to help expand our thinking of what God is doing here in creating Eve. But when we hear the word helper, 
I think most of us probably think of supporter or sidekick, or maybe it's even kind of like a demeaning title, or you know, it's like something you say to your kid, your mommy's little helper. But the word used here, helper, it's a word that connotes active intervention on behalf of another. God says, Adam needs someone else who's going to actively intervene on his behalf, who's going to support and strengthen him. And this word helper, actually, it's most commonly used in reference to God in the Bible, when it's in the Bible. Psalm 115, the Lord is my help and my shield. A helper is one who supplies strength and connected to it, one who saves from danger. Husbands, can I get an amen? Like, supply strength and saves from danger. So that's helper. And then you got this word suitable. This is a notoriously hard word to translate because the literal translation is like against him. Like against him. As opposite him. Counterpart to him. A suitable helper then is one who is like Adam, but different than him and brings strength to him. So God makes this declaration, and then there's this little detour, and I've always found this kind of humorous. We're told that the Lord God, verse 19, had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. I've always found this humorous. God says, I'm going to make a suitable helper for Adam. But he doesn't just make Eve. Instead, he goes on this little detour, and God obviously knows what he's doing. But I think he's trying to teach Adam something. It's almost like uh, if you've ever, at Christmas, you got your kid what they really wanted, but you keep that for last, and you kind of maybe even give them some gag gifts that they're like, ugh. And then you give them the real one, and they're like, oh my gosh, I think that's what God's doing here. Because you can imagine Adam, God's like, I'm, I'm going to get you a helper. And walks a giraffe. <laughs> not a suitable helper. Bear, no, that's not going to work. Porcupine, no, that's not going to work. None of these things work. But I think God is preparing Adam for the incredible gift that he's about to provide. We read in verse 21 that the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. I'm not trying to be provocative here, but imagine, imagine what it was like for Adam in that moment. Like you just had all the beasts of the field brought before you. God knocks you out. You're like, what happened? You wake up, you're sore. And then Eve is standing there naked before him. How does Adam respond? He kind of gets lost in our translation where it says, this is now. But he's really like, finally, at last, there she is. This is the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He sings a song which might not seem all that romantic to women today or too poetic, but these are the only human words recorded before the fall into sin. And they are a song a man sings about his wife, celebrating Finally, finally, she's here. Adam recognizes the gift. 
and he sees her. He says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, but she will be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he's, he's looking and saying, she's like me, but she's also different than me. She's equal to me, but she's kind of her own species in a way as well. I love the way Matthew Henry commenting on this verse, he's an old preacher. Uh, he said this, that, that Eve was not made out of Adam's head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his side to be beloved. I've always loved that quote. In this passage, these, these few verses, they teach us so much about the purpose God has for marriage. And what is that? I would call it God's purpose for marriage is complementary companionship. Complementary companionship. At its heart, marriage, at the most fundamental level, it's about companionship. It's about sharing your life with another person, sharing your home with another person, your finances, your meals, your body, maybe even children. It's companionship, but it's complementary. And when I say complementary, I'm not like, that's not like you look nice in that dress, although that's certainly a part of marriage. I mean, complementary with an E, like peanut butter and chocolate, that when you put them together, something really wonderful and magical happens and they're better together than they were apart. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Man and woman, complementary companionship in which they bring strengths to each other's weaknesses. That's the purpose of marriage. And I think one of the primary reasons marriages struggle, especially in our day, is because either one or both of the spouses don't understand this design and this purpose for marriage. You know, my first church that I planted years ago, there I was the lead pastor at 26, and I was the old sage in the church. I was very young. And so there was a lot of discussions all the time surrounding dating and marriage. And are they the one? I don't know if they're the one. Like, is this the one I'm supposed to? I mean, kind of nonstop. And so many questions. And so I would sit down with people and, you know, like, should I marry her or dump her? I'm like, it's always such a weird question. But, you know, they're kind of all in or not. And I would ask people, what are you looking for in a spouse? And I'm not exaggerating. Sometimes the, some of the answers I would hear, you know, I want someone who will take my breath away, someone who makes my heart skip a beat, someone who knows me better than I know myself, who knows what I'm thinking and feeling, someone who can finish my sentences, someone who will never let me down, disappoint me, make me feel bad or ashamed. I want someone who completes me. Any Jerry Maguire fans? <laughs> They'd finish saying all that, and I would say, good luck. You're not looking for a spouse. You're looking for a savior. You're not looking for a companion who's going to provide strengths to your weaknesses. You're looking for someone that doesn't exist. When you put those kinds of expectations on another human being, you're going to crush them. Just like if you put a refrigerator on the back of my three-year-old, you'd crush them. No one can carry that kind of a weight. This view of marriage, it's so shaped, I think, by our modern world by Hollywood, where we see these contrived stories about what love is and what marriage is supposed to be that no one, no human being could ever live up to, no marriage could ever live up to because life is not a movie and marriage lasts longer than two hours. And so many people come into marriage and they're expecting it to be something different than that. They, they put all of this weight. It's about 
total personal fulfillment. It's just not. It's about complementary companionship. And when you actually understand that design, you realize that means marriage is probably going to be kind of different or difficult because we're different. We're wired differently. And we're going to come in and we're going to bring different perspectives on things, see the world differently. This is actually by design, and it's a good thing in marriage. It's just a hard part of marriage. You know, couples who've made it 20 years or more, both spouses, they're actually different people because of that. And my wife and I have been married, uh, we're coming up on 18 years. And it's just kind of amazing, like, how much I've changed because of her. And I hope for the good she's changed because of me. Uh, But I can speak for how she's influenced me that, like, I just see the world differently now. Because, you know, when you live with someone that long who sees the world differently than you do, you kind of get their voice in your head. And so a situation emerges, and I don't just know how I would respond. I can actually hear my wife and how she would respond. Or I'll say something dumb, and I can already hear my wife saying, hey, that probably wasn't the best way to say that. Like, it, they, they challenge you. I love how Tim Keller put it. He said, when you get married and you stick it out for the long haul, what you're doing is diversifying your wisdom portfolio because you're no longer seeing the world just through your eyes, but through your spouse's eyes. But that's going to bring challenges too. going to butt heads. But that's the design. It's complementary companionship. That, That is the purpose for it. But that is not all marriage is. It's the purpose. But what about the essence of marriage? And that's what I mean when I say promise. What's what's at the very essence? Because a lot of relationships can provide companionship. They can even be complementary to an extent. What makes marriage different? And it's all wrapped up in verse 24, where we're told, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. At its heart, marriage is not just kind of a deeper type of friendship. At its heart, marriage is a mysterious, God-ordained thing where two separate entities come together and they form a third entity, where the two become one, where the language here, they become united man will be united to his wife. He'll leave behind other relationships, father and mother, and he will be united. It could also be translated as joined, hold fast, bonded, glued, cemented. However you want to put it, the two are united to, so that they become one. And that word united, it's, it's a biblical word that's used elsewhere to describe covenantal relationships. God's being united with his people and his people being united with him. And covenants are different than contracts. In a contract, you both make an agreement, and if either party fails to fulfill their duties and obligation, then the contract is null and void. But a covenant's different. And I mean this, thank God. A covenant, both parties make promises and commitments, but even if one party fails to fulfill their end, the other party still is under obligation to fulfill their end. This is the heart of marriage. It's a lifelong commitment of loyalty between a husband and wife. It's permanent. You know, after I counseled people in that, my first church, 
A lot of them got married at dozens of weddings and something they don't really tell you, but like, there's no like instruction of how exactly a wedding ceremony should go in the Bible. It's not like 1 Corinthians 12, here's how you perform a wedding ceremony. And so we were kind of just calling around asking, putting them together and people started asking, can we write our own vows? And I'm like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. I did that for like two or three weddings until finally I was like, we gotta cut this out because they would come before their family and friends and for their vows, they would say things like, I love the way your nose crinkles when you laugh. I love your messy hair, don't care attitude. And I'm like, that's great. I'm glad that you love these things because you're gonna be around them both for a long time. But that, that's not a vow. That's a pronouncement of love and affection, which is wonderful, and there's a place for that. But that's not a vow. A vow is a promise. It's a promise that I am going to be with you and I'm going to stick with you for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer. If you get sick or I get sick or we have years of health, I'm going to stick with you no matter what until one of us dies. I mean, that is a massive commitment, right? <laughs> I think like God wired us with so many hormones in our late teens, early 20s that would make us make that commitment because by the time you're 40 and some of you didn't get married till later in life, you have more wisdom. Like, what am I really getting myself into? When you're 20, you're like, I don't care. I just want to be married. Get me in there. It's a massive commitment. Lifelong commitment of love and loyalty. At the essence of marriage, it's the promise. 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, I'm still gonna be here. This is God's design. And this means marriage can't just be about self-fulfillment or making you happy. It's a commitment. And when that commitment, this is what I find so interesting, when that commitment is made publicly at a wedding ceremony and then sealed in the marriage bed, the two become one, not just on a human level, but God gets involved in a mysterious way. And we know this because in Matthew 19, Jesus actually quotes verse 24, uh, man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, they become one flesh. And then Jesus adds this on at the end. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God's actually involved in this process in a mysterious way. He's, he's bringing the two and making them one. See, the essence of marriage, it's this promise of commitment that's been sealed by God. And I think this is what so many people in our culture kind of look at the Christian view of marriage and they think, what? Because I think in our world, people look at just the idea of making any kind of long-term commitment and it makes them wary, but the rest of my life, I'm supposed to be committed to this person? I think what most people overlook is that the permanence of marriage, that's what actually enables you to grow and deepen as a person. The permanence of marriage is what actually really forms you because it creates an environment in which you can actually show up as who you really are. Your spouse can show up as they really are and you can actually deal with the truth of who you are. Dating is not like that, right? Dating is kind of a lie through and through. 
right? You show up, you put your best foot forward, you wear your best clothes, you script it all out, you go out to restaurants that you probably would never go out to on your own, but you want to act like you're a generous person, whatever it is, it's your best foot, and that's fine. It's a mating ritual, right? You're just, you're trying to win, win over the partner. And what happens if something bad happens on a date? You're done. What happens if you just, you know, don't like the way they hold their fork or they eat their peas one at a time and it just drives you nuts, right? You can say, all right, we're over with. This is, this is over. And that's totally, you don't even have to give a reason. A lot of times they'll want a reason, but you don't have to. There's no commitment there. But in marriage, well, that whole life of dating, it's not sustainable long-term. It's exhausting and it's expensive. But when you get married, like, that's when you, you can't always put your best foot forward. You're not always going to have great breath. You're not always going to have great hair. You're not always going to be well-dressed. Like in marriage, that's where you actually get to see each other for who you truly are. You're not always going to be 20. Like gravity's going to take a toll on you. You're going to go through what one author called the serial humiliations of aging. Just your body's going to change. You're going to change. And when you make the commitment, the permanence, that's where it's, you can say, we're going to change together in this. And it actually, it creates safety. It's the permanence that creates safety to, to say hard things, to have a bad day. To really get to know not just who your spouse is, but who you are. You know, I, I think if, if you are following Jesus, you're doing your work, you're growing as your own person, what you'll find is that your first five to 10 years of marriage, you think the real problem in your marriage is your spouse. Like this is, I've seen it again. It's, well, if they would just change all of these things. But what happens over time is 20 years in, you realize, oh, marriage isn't just bringing me into confrontation with them. Marriage is actually bringing me into confrontation with me. As someone once famously said, it's a terrifying thing to become acquainted with oneself. If you're tracking with me, you'll understand why there's this famous quote that says, you, you always marry the wrong person. You know, I'd always get the, is this person the one? No. No one's the one. Stanley Howard, he writes this. He says, destructive to marriage is a self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. But this moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered into it. Everybody's saying it's going to change you so much, change your spouse so much. You're going to be different. Hopefully you're going to be better people and deeper people. And it's the permanence of marriage that actually allows, it's the fights and the conflict and the hard conversation that actually allows us, that's how we grow as human beings and mature. And so I, I'm going to say in particular, if you're an, 
a hard marriage or your marriage is in a hard season and you're really struggling right now and you want to check out, please don't check out. Reach out for help. I know you might feel like you're at the end of your rope, but you never know what God might do through the hard circumstances right now. And one of the things I love about our church, some of the older couples, my wife and I have talked to them like, man, how'd you make it 40 years in marriage? How'd you do it? And they're like, well, the first 20 years, we didn't like each other. We actually hated each other. They were horrible. They were a horrible 20 years. But the second 20 years have been amazing because we worked through the stuff, we pushed through it, and now we enjoy each other so much. I think a lot of people, they, they want to hit eject when it gets hard. They don't want to stick it out, but it's when you stick it out that really beautiful and amazing things happen. It's when God shows up in powerful ways. It's even, you grow in your depth of understanding the gospel and grace. I mean, it's so much. And so if you're struggling, don't, don't give up. Don't check out. Reach out for help. Reach out to us. We're not going to tell you, just suck it up and do better. I mean, if there are issues in your marriage, we want to help you work through them. This doesn't mean if you're in an abusive situation, just endure it anymore. Please don't hear that. I'm just saying, I know marriage can be hard and people want to give up. In the last two years, been really hard. Just don't give up. Reach out. Get some help. You don't know what God might do. Marriage is a promise. Purpose, companionship, complimentary. Promise, I'm here for life. And then lastly, the provision. Because if you're hearing that saying, that's a, that's a tall order for any human being. It is. Genesis 2, it ends by telling us that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were naked physically, but they were also naked emotionally, relationally. They were fully seen and fully known by each other. They saw each other for who they truly were and they felt no shame. This is an interesting bit of Bible trivia, but I'm almost certain that this is the only time in the Bible where nakedness is spoken of positively. Everywhere else in the Bible, nakedness is spoken of of humiliation or poverty or shame, but this here, it's celebrated. Why? Why the change? Well, because we know Genesis 2 is followed by Genesis 3. And after God designs marriage, creates Eve, they have this wonderful wedding Shortly after that, Adam and Eve rebel against God and his desire for them, for their marriage, and for the world. And one of the consequences of sin, there's a lot of consequences, but one of the consequences is that Adam and Eve, for the first time, become aware that they're naked. Verse 8 of chapter 3, after the fall, we're told that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And I think there's tremendous tenderness in that question. Like, it's not as if God didn't know where they were. You know, I kind of view this as when my three-year-old, to reference him again, it's when he throws a blanket over himself in front of me, and it's like, where's Hank? And he starts giggling, you know, they're not giggling here, but kind of this like, God knows where they are. But he goes and he says, hey, where are you? Where'd you go? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked, 
so I hid. I was afraid of being seen. I was afraid of being known. I was afraid of you seeing who I am to the bottom because I was afraid, I was certain that you would reject me. I mean, it's shame right here. Before the fall, there was this tremendous possibility to be fully known, naked, and to be fully loved, unashamed. You can know me exactly as I am, and you're going to love me to the bottom. Now we feel like we have to choose. Every relationship, we're trying to make that choice. We're trying to navigate that. Like, how much will, can I tell them about who I really am that they'll still love me? I, if I'm fully known, there's, they're not going to love me. If I'm loved, then I'm not going to be known. And so just like Adam and Eve, we make fig leaves. We try to hide. But God calls them out of hiding. And he says, this doesn't have to be the end of the story. Come out of hiding. He takes away their fig leaves. And he provides a covering for their nakedness. And Adam and Eve, they could still live together. They couldn't be fully known to each other. It's kind of life on the, this fallen planet. But God, when he provided skins to cover their nakedness, we know that that wasn't the end of the story. It, it foreshadowed God's ultimate provision. That our God is a God who doesn't look upon people in their sin and mock them or shame them. Our God is a God whose first instinct, Genesis 3, is to cover them. And this, this picture here in Genesis 3, it points us forward to the greatest act of covering we have in the Bible. We have Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to earth. And he doesn't come with his finger just scolding people. He comes loving people, broken people. He comes and makes himself known, and he knows people, and he loves them. He knows how many times she's been married, but he's still present to her and loves her. He's the only one who never had a reason for shame, and yet he's nailed to a cross naked so that he wouldn't just take, take the guilt. He would also take the shame of our sin. And what we're told in the New Testament is in a mysterious way, God now takes Jesus' righteousness, his perfectly holy life, and he clothes us who believe in that righteousness like a robe. That's why we as Christians, we can say, I am righteous before God, even though we know we're not, but we're covered in his righteousness. And him covering us in Christ's righteousness it enables us to operate in this world in a different way than the world operates. It enables us to live a better story. In our world, we have a story of tit for tat, of payback, of, you know, you are what you've done. And the good news of the gospel is, no, you are what Christ has done for you. And the implications of that are massive. I want to give you two, and then we'll be done. One. If you're here and you have a messy history of relationships, maybe you've been divorced and it wasn't your fault, or maybe it was your fault, you've committed adultery. If you're here and you like hear this and you're like, I am so far from that design, I just want to say there's so much grace for you. It's so interesting to me that Jesus particularly the women that he ministered to, so many of them had a lot of sexual brokenness and sin in their life. 
There's that famous, famous story of when Jesus is with the Pharisees, you know, the most elite religious people in the world. Jesus is there, a prostitute strolls in and she cracks open her bottle of perfume, pours it on his feet, wipes his feet with her hair and kisses his feet. All of the religious guys, like most people here probably, were very, very uncomfortable. Jesus, if, if, he, if he was really the savior, he would know who she is. And he's like, are you kidding me? I know who she is. I know what she's done. But what she's doing here is a beautiful act for me. And so if you've been through bad relationships, if you're divorced, the church has not always done a great job of loving and caring for divorced people. I'm sorry for that. But I want you to know there is grace and mercy. No one, no one's ever perished at the feet of Jesus. And so if you're in a messy relationship now, if you've got sexual sin in your life right now, if you come to Jesus and you throw yourself at his feet and say, forgive me and help me, he's not going to turn you away. It's a promise of healing and hope. Now, if you're married, the implication for you is simply this. The provision God gives to us for marriage is grace. He's shown us grace. We can show each other grace. You can show your spouse grace. Marriages, they have to be based upon grace. They have to. If they're based upon works, then you're, it's not going to make it. Two sinful people living in close quarters for 50 years. What could go wrong? And if you start keeping record and tallying mentally, oh, you did this, and then you did this. And you, we do this, right? Because you get in a fight, and all of a sudden, all this other stuff comes out, and you're like, where did that come from? Oh, you've been keeping that in your back pocket. If that's the way your marriage goes, man, it's going to be insufferable. It's going to be so hard. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be accountability. I'm not saying you don't need to follow through on your commitments. What I am saying is, if we're going to make marriage about works and all that you do for me, man, it's never going to work. It's going to be miserable, even if you make it. The only way to make marriage work is to recognize that you are a sinner and that you're married to a sinner. And yet God does wonderful things through broken, sinful people who want to honor him and live by grace. And I would say when you're able to do that, when you're able to look at your spouse and say, okay, they're not my savior, that's become apparent by now. And they're actually sinful, just like me. But I'm going to love them, and I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be faithful to them. I actually think that's when the really beautiful marriages start to emerge. Because you're embracing it for what it is. You're embracing reality. You're not trying to complete each other. You're complimenting each other. You're sticking it out. That's my prayer for us and for the story that we tell to the watching world about God's design for marriage. Yeah, we're both screwed up. Jesus loves us. We love each other. We show each other grace. And we're committed to doing that for the long haul. And we do that because as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we know our marriage is not just about our marriage. We know that our marriage is a picture. We know that the Bible, maybe you've never thought of this, the Bible, it begins and ends with the wedding. Did you know that? Very beginning, there's a wedding. Adam and Eve, and that wedding falls prey to sin. At the end, the end of the story, 
When Jesus returns, there's going to be another wedding between Jesus and his church. And in that wedding, the husband's not going to fail his bride, who is us. We're told in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her. By whom? By the Lord. It was granted to us, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the wedding to which all of our weddings point. And we're told that after that wedding, it's going to be the greatest reception in the history of the world. There's going to be a massive party, a feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we're going to have the choices of meats, we're told, and the finest of wines. And that's actually something we're supposed to think about, is that, I don't know if you've ever had a great reservation lined up for a dinner. That's the reservation to end all reservations that we as God's people are supposed to think about, that there is a future promise for us. There's a meal waiting for us. We take part in a meal every week here, the Lord's Supper. And if you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to take part in this with us. We have communion cups. If you didn't grab one, there's some in the baskets. This is something reserved for followers of Jesus. But if you are, I encourage you to take part in this. And you can tear off the top part and eat the wafer as you remember that Christ's body was broken for you. Broken for your sins. Broken for your healing. And then you can take that little cup of juice, which represents Christ's blood that was shed for you. And we do this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember what I've done for you. And so communion is an act of remembering, but it's also an act of anticipation. This meal reminds us of the meal that Jesus has promised us, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so with that vision in mind, let us pray and ask God for help and grace and mercy. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.